Alright, hello everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am your host, per usual. On the agenda this evening, UFC had an event last night. It was an event. Um, uh, I, I have some good things to say about it, but man, this was, uh, this was just a clockwork, right? This was just the machinery turning over. There was what came out of this event that was interesting or memorable or whatnot was, uh, was not down to anything to do with the matchmaking necessarily or narratives or what have you it was just hey this was kind of cool and then a lot of it was not uh we also had a pretty big boxing event on saturday the third fight between canelo alvarez and gennady golovkin so i'll give you some thoughts on that because i don't mind talking boxing here and there especially when it's a big boxing event then we have news and we've got some news to talk about uh this week so before we get going, as usual, anything you can do to interact with the product, like, comment, subscribe, written rating, written rating, written review, star rating, uh, whatever's applicable to the podcast platform you are listening through. That's all helpful. And if you've done all that, throw a share my way. Let people know that you like the show and, you know, if you know anyone that you think might enjoy it, point them in my direction. All right. Let's let's jump into last night UFC on ESPN plus 68. Um, before I get into the fights proper, I want to talk a little bit about why this event suffered and where it suffered. They were doing a big thing on commentary pretty much all night, crowing about you know there's 13 people who got into the UFC via the Contender Series fighting on this card. Well, it showed. And I don't necessarily mean that as a positive. Look, I'm not opposed to the Contender Series in some like grand ethical format. I mean, I have issues with the UFC's pay structure and whatnot, but that's if the UFC paid what you know what would be more a fair uh, percentage to the fighters, hypothetically, I would still. I wouldn't, if that was the case, I would not have nearly the same kinds of issues that I do with the Contender Series that I do, so it's somewhat symptomatic of a greater problem. But I, I don't, so I don't really object to, hey, here's a way to fight for the UFC promoter and potentially fight for a bigger audience for a lot of these fighters. Yeah, there's not a lot of people, there's not a lot of people coming from like, hey, I was a big deal in Bellator. Or as a you know, multiple-time PFL winner, or you know, something like that. Or then, you know, hey, fight your way on via the Contender Series. Now the UFC just pays for them. So for a lot of these fighters, it's a bigger platform than maybe they've been on in the past. I don't know how many people watch the show, but some do. And it's certainly not zero. And you have an opportunity to fight for the largest MMA promotion in the world. And you know, furthermore... I slag off the UFC's pay structure a lot, and I do here for the Contender Series, especially because guys come in on, I think the standard contract coming in is 12-12. and 12. I don't know how many fights, but I would bet it's somewhere between 4 and 6. Just if I had to guess, that's it's somewhere in that range. It might vary from fighter to fighter, but 
Again, four to six. So you're on 12 and 12 for the majority of the fights on your first contract. The UFC almost never renegotiates a contract uh, after like one fight. You get close to the end of your deal, you can renegotiate or you can let it expire. And you, there's a lot of different ways to do that. But the point is, like, especially if you're coming off the contender series, like you're not going to get a big moment. And the UFC immediately goes, you know what? You're going from 12 and 12 to 50 and 50. It's not going to happen. You're going to have to fight out a giant chunk of that contract. And the UFC also used, and you, know, you can maybe make an you could maybe make an argument that this is a general ethical problem with the setup, but the UFC uses the Contender Series as a puppy mill. I mean, the the first couple of seasons, the first season in particular, they were uh, pretty discerning, actually, about who might get a contract. Now, it's, it's a joke. If you're a male fighter and you get a finish, you're probably getting a contract. If you're a female fighter and you win, you're probably getting a contract. There's going to be exceptions to that, of course, but but in general, yeah, that's probably how that's going to work. Because the UFC, I'm going to phrase this negatively and understand that I'm doing so deliberately, please. But the UFC operates a little bit like a cult. Uh, last week, I think I talked a little bit about how the structure of the UFC has ch the relationship with their fighters has changed over uh, you know the last 10 12 years give or take uh, now this is because you can see this you can see this with a lot of different fighters actually some of whom have gone on to much greater success the UFC has a lot of money at their disposal and will sign a struggling fighter. And again, if you're fighting your way on via the Contender Series, you're probably a struggling fighter. Because I might, again, I might kind of slag off 12 and 12. There's a real chance that for most of the fighters coming in via the Contender Series, that 12K guarantee is more than they were, than, than they were making per fight elsewhere. Um... So I'm I'm not I'm I'm not trying to take that away and say that you know how dare you fight for peanuts if that's more than you were making you're moving up in the world that's legitimate and that's real uh, it is to say that you know the UFC perpetually only sharing less than 20% of revenue year over year with, uh, on fighter compensation is a problem and those two things are not mutually exclusive but then they will the UFC will it's a really interesting bit of conditioning, actually, because the UFC uses um, not necessarily classical conditioning, which is perpetually pairing a stimulus uh, with an associated uh, automatic response until the two are so deeply associated in your head that whenever this unrelated stimulus happens, you get the physiological response. The Pavlov's dogs are the very obvious example. But random reinforcement is actually more efficient adding adding uh, ingraining behavior which is really weird but it's true so the ufc isn't going to give you a lot of bonuses but they will give you them randomly and they've got a pretty good feel about doing so when fighters need it so you know daniel cormier and michael bisbing will both tell stories about the generosity of the ufc 
And I'm not saying that's nothing. It's not. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It does. But if you're fighting in the UFC, you should probably not be in that position to begin with. The fact that you've still got... You know, the bonuses are still $50,000. Now, that's a lot... I'm not saying that's not a lot of money. Uh, 50k is a gi- is a hefty chunk of change. But it's been that way... I mean, that hasn't adjusted for inflation. Right? It's been $50,000 bonus for like eight, nine years. Possibly even longer. So, you know, we'll jack up the price on every streaming platform available, but the fighters are still stuck on a bonus structure that's significantly outdated. I mean, that was the funny thing about, like, the when Venom took over for Reebok, I mentioned this. Like, Venom's paying the same as Reebok was out to fighters. Except that, again, the Reebok numbers were like six, seven years old. So you're, they're technically paying less if we adjust if we adjust for inflation and whatnot. Venom's actually paying less than Reebok was <laughs> to fighters. So, uh, so the long and the short of that is the UFC will get someone like Joe Pfeiffer, and he's now on the commentary. He's now like scores a win in his UFC debut. I'll talk about him more in specifics when we get to his fight, but then says, you know, the UFC brass are just the best. You know, Dana gave me some uh, bonuses that I'm sure were also disclosed to the IRS, but Dana gave me some stuff, and he's setting me up in a place to live so I can train, but I had some hard times. And I'm sure that means a lot. It clearly meant a lot to Joe Pfeiffer, and what I'm about to say should not diminish that, demean that, or anything else. But if you sign to the UFC... You should never be in that position. The UFC makes o- is going to make over a billion dollars this year. None of their, no one fighting for the UFC should be should be in a position to tell the kinds of horror stories that some fighters have while they're signed to the UFC in the year of our Lord 2022. So yeah, there's a lot of people coming in via the Contender Series, and it means you're going to get about a year. I mean, look, if you get, a, again, somewhere between four and six fights before they have to renegotiate, they can, like, they'll just, you're going to be stuck on that 12 and 12 for a year or so, probably more. Um, and we're going to see two very, very divergent paths to the UFC, I think, start to emerge more and more. You're going to see the guys who come in via the Contender Series and spend the first two years of their career in the UFC fighting as often as humanly possible to get through these opening deals. And then you're going to see the guys who are valuable outside of the UFC and the UFC then pays to bring in. Look, what did they do for Michael Chandler? Michael Chandler didn't have to do... The UFC just paid Michael Chandler a lot of money. They did for Justin Gagey. Uh, Gagey wasn't making as much as Chandler necessarily his first fight, but they didn't, he didn't jump through hoops. They said, here's a good, by UFC terms, contract, come fight for us. And you're going to, there's going to be a pretty steep divide as far as fighters go in the near future about that, I think. You're just going to see, you're going to see that, that gap, right? You're going to see that gap and it's going to grow. So, but 
when when a relatively small act of generosity relative to the amount of uh, resources at the disposal of the UFC means that much to a fighter, yeah, you're going to engender some loyalty. And in some cases, it will be... Uh, I just, you know, to Mr. Pfeiffer, I hope very much that you do not go 0-3 in your next... I don't know if you don't go on a three-fight losing skid and get cut. And I, if you do, I wonder what your tune would be. Uh, but we'll see. We, we'll have to wait and see. That's just a, a weird little thing I noticed. Like, the USC uses random reinforcement about some of this stuff better than a lot of other places, actually. So, But this was not a great event. Uh, there, were, there was some good stuff, but there was a lot of just... Yeah. So with that out of the way, let's get into the fights in more specific detail. Starting with your main event. Uh, Corey Sandhagen defeats Song Yudong via doctor stoppage due to a cut on Song between rounds four and five. So at five minutes of round four. This was a pretty decent fight. I, I got issues with the scoring of this fight. It didn't become super relevant, again, because we had a finish, but going into the fifth, hypothetically, I had Corey Sandhagen up 39-37. I had given him rounds 2, 3, and 4. I gave Song the first. I believe the official scorecards, one judge agreed with me. Two of the others gave Song the first two rounds, and then... Sandhagen three and four, meaning it was still potentially up for grabs in a fifth round. Um, I'm not saying giving Song the second round is the worst scorecard in the world, because I don't think it is. But it's not great. And we've got to do... I, I don't know what to do about this. Let me be very clear. But I think we've got to do something about how judges how they weight visually heavy punches that don't really land or have any effect because Song was throwing heavier leather and he was the one pushing forward more often but he wasn't landing all that much that was effective um, I just I really disagree with giving Song the second that doesn't necessarily mean there's not an argument to be had given the nature of the scoring criteria, but it does mean I pretty heavily disagree. Now, there were a few different gnarly cuts that took place on this event. Talking about the one to Song here, it happens, I believe, it was the second round. Sandhagen hits this really just sweet little left upward elbow as they're uh, crashing distance and opens this very large gash above the left eye, uh, it's traveling like diagonally upward through the left eyebrow of Song, a little bit under the under the brow and then up kind of onto the forehead, and it was bad. I mean, that was a very bad cut. Uh, it started bleeding very, very quickly. Uh, doctor checks on it between, ra uh, like the doctor would check on it between each round. And then after the fourth, he just kind of finally went, no, we're done. Uh, which was the correct call. Like by that point, that cut got worse every round. 
I mean, I could understand when he looked at it after the second and went, keep an eye on it. It's in a bad spot, but the bleeding's under control, which is always a consideration. And it's not quite to the point where I think it's, I think it's you know, a necessity to stop the fight. And you can look at that cut, and honestly, if they had stopped it, I would have seen the argument, but I can also see the argument for letting the fight continue at that point. Between rounds three and four, again, the cut's worse. And I'm... I thought they could have stopped it there, and I don't think anyone would have objected. We get another round, and uh, I'll go to some of the specific technique in a minute. But after the fourth... That cut is not only worse now, it, it, it keeps lengthening. Um, it was already pretty deep. Like that's, that's one of the weird things about some facial cuts. If you're worried about them getting worse, there's a couple of different ways they can get worse, some of which is position relative to vital organs. Like the, um, the eyes aren't vital, but, you know, sensitive. Uh, position relative to the eye is a big one. That's kind of the big one. But depth is another kind of consideration. And anytime you get a cut that just almost immediately goes down to the skull, more or less, like that's not getting much worse in certain respects, right? It's already as deep as it's going to go. Um, but you know, where is it relative to other things? And I mean, also to be clear, if the doctor's if the doctor has kind of an unofficial policy of if I can see bone, we're stopping the fight. That's very reasonable. Just to be quite candid, if you can see bone and the doctor says, no, I can see bone, we're done. I don't think that's unreasonable, just for the record. Uh, but it, it started to swell, uh, which you know, happens to cuts. Like it, It's what happens, especially when they keep getting agitated. And Sandhagen was, after he opened that cut up, he was still throwing more elbows, still jabbing. He was still going for it, so he was actively trying to make it worse. Uh, and yeah, by that point, I, the doctor's like checking on Song before the fifth, and he didn't like what he's seeing. And Song actually says, "I believe, like I can't see." He he was his eye was messed up. Perfectly fine stoppage. Uh, some really interesting stuff out of both guys. Sandhagen again doing a lot of his stance switching. Long-range sniping. Um, I think he's kind of come to terms with the fact that he's not a big power puncher. And you, you could hear commentary talk about this a little bit. Song's forward pressure was not being deterred by the power punching of Corey Sandhagen. So Sandhagen started... If you don't have stopping power in your hands, necessarily... Another way to dissuade someone who likes to close distance like that is to put something put you know, a chunk of bone between you and them. If you follow boxing, this is where you get, you know, the old cheeky nodder. If you're worried about someone like Mike Tyson exploding and covering distance, you bring your guard up, you tuck your chin, you lower your head, and you let him run into the top of your head. And it's dirty in boxing. I mean, headbutting is dirty in pretty much every sport. Not Lutway or Combat Sambo. But most of the time, headbutting is dirty and illegal. And it still happens. You, know, you get clashes of heads, but 
it's a way to deter someone who likes to close distance like that. Well, in MMA, you also have the use of your elbows and your knees. And I think Sandhagen has kind of figured out a little bit of how to intercept with his elbows more than just trying to punch his way out of a situation. Uh, so there was that. More wrestling attacks from Sandhagen here. Um, he's not usually this dedicated to it, and his clinch looked a lot better. You know, that was one of the big things in the TJ Dillashaw fight was Dillashaw just got a couple of minutes of control time, and even though he didn't do anything with it, it was enough to sway a couple of judges to thinking that Dillashaw won that fight. I still think Sandhagen should have won that fight, and I have on rewatch. Um, Dillashaw's control is not compelling at all. In that fight, at least, but... So, Sandhagen looked a little bit more uh, will, ready and willing to fight in that range. His body work is still good. Uh, he didn't go to it as often as he has in other fights. I think he was worried about the counterpunching of Song, and with good reason. Song has fast hands. Uh, he's got some pretty good kicks when he uses them. He's not a big kicker, but uh, he, but they exist. And he's got power. I mean, Song has legitimate punching power, especially for bantamweight. And I think that was a major consideration here. The fight was getting worse for Song the longer it went. Uh, you know, Corey Sandhagen, uh, another thing commentary mentioned, like, I'm not going to call him the bantamweight Tony Ferguson because I think that's not accurate. But a lot of the times when he fights, like, he's started to really kind of carve people up. You know, he cut TJ Dillashaw um, more than once when they fought. You know, he's, he's got a little bit of brutal in him, you know? <clears throat> and it's it's starting to show off. Like, he messed Song up here. Especially the longer that fight went, man. Round four was not... Like, that was barely competitive. Uh, Much-needed win for Sandhagen. I don't think Song's stock drops too much in this loss. It, it, it's never good to lose. But this was a pretty serious step up in competition for him. And it's... Again, it's not like he was doing badly. He wasn't blown out of the water until... Like, until we get to, like, the end of the fourth, when the accumulation of everything is just too much. Plenty of other fighters would have folded long before that. So, I think he'll wind up resetting a little bit, and he's obviously got to wait for the hole in his head to heal. But he... I, I think he'll use this as a learning experience, and I think he will be back better next time. Um, Sandhagen said after the fight he wants to fight you know, for the belt, or someone like Marab or Marlon Vera... The violence potential of Corey Sandhagen and Marlon Vera is off. Like, that's at the top of the charts, man. Uh, that is way up at the top of the charts. If both of those guys are amenable to that and the timing works out, yes. Hook that into my veins. Let those two maniacs tear each other apart. All of my yes. Um, song, I... I feel like Song should take enough time that I'm not sure who I want to pick for him to fight just yet. I think the landscape will shift a little. Certain elements of the landscape at Bantamweight will shift significantly enough that by the time he's ready for his next fight, uh, I don't know that any name I give here would necessarily make the most sense. But I, I still I still think Song's a pretty darn good, you know, a very good fighter. Uh, his takedown defense here was really good. 
I mean, it took a while before Sandhagen's wrestling kind of wore him down. And again, that was late, and that was after all the abuse he'd taken to the head. But he's got strong hips. He's got a good sprawl. He's good against the fence. Uh, he oh, Sandhagen got him overreacting pretty early, uh, which is always a good sign. If you can get your opponent to really bite on everything you show and bite in a big way like that, it's things are that's a good indicator. But you know, like I said, I still think Song's got a very very bright future. And give me Sandhagen and Vera if at all possible, please. That oh that's so good. That would be such a good fight. So, um, that was your main event. Not, this didn't get fight of the night. It will probably be the one I think about the most after the fact. Rather than your actual fight of the night, which is our next fight. Your co-main event. Gregory Rodriguez defeats Chidi and Jaquani via TKO. Uh, punches 127 of the second. This fight's bonkers. Um, Gregory Rodriguez just has bonkers fights, I think. Uh, he come, these two came out, and pretty early on, Injaquani times a knee with a double leg from Rodriguez and cracks him in the head. And this knee opens up one of the, like, I've seen cuts like the one on Song before. It's a pretty nasty cut, but... I've seen it, you know, I have variations of it. It's been a long time since I've seen a cut like the one that opened up on Gregory Rodriguez here. It was pretty much right between the eyes, like I, between the eyebrows and across the top of the bridge of the nose. And it wasn't vertical. It was horizontal. And it was bad. I don't think we realized how bad it... I mean, we knew it was bad. But you know, then, after the fight, Dana White posts uh, to his Instagram the picture... He took a picture right before they started stitching Rodriguez up in the back. And then one after, kind of a before and after thing. That before picture... I mean, you, you've got a... I... If you're, if you're enough of a gorehound like me, like I'm part gorehound, like if you've got a strong enough stomach... Take a look at that thing. It is... I mean, it's not just that... It's not just horizontal, but actually is a vertical component. It's kind of like a t an upside-down T. And it it's deep, and it's pretty... I mean, the, do the doctor checks on this cut between rounds one and two, and he tells the ref in no uncertain terms, watch that if it opens up more... Again, the, the danger here is not how deep the cut is. It's pretty much to the skull. Uh, it didn't see, it didn't hit any of the major blood vessels that could be kind of running through that area. But if that goes wider, um, it's right across from his eyes. So the doctor tells him, tells the ref, watch that if that opens up at all. Like, get me in here. I need to double check this. This could be very. It, they could have stopped this one. Just for the record, that fight doctor could have waved this one off. Between the rounds, and no one's complaining. Like that, it's that bad a cut. No one is complaining. But he says, you know, I'll I'll give it a bit, but 
if anything happens to that, we're done. And Rodriguez seems to have heard that, been, or been aware of it. He immediately gets after Njikawani. Um, I mean, the first round was crazy enough. I actually thought Rodriguez won it. Um, Njikawani, yeah, and he hits that knee that badly hurts Rodriguez. Not just cuts him, it badly rocks him. But Rodriguez fights his way back. He hurts Njikawani, then drops him with some uppercuts in the clinch. He wound up dropping him twice, I think. Um, there's some nice clinch fighting from both guys here. But the body work of Rodriguez ultimately kind of spells the end for Njikawani. Uh, he's kind of poking him in the body all for as long as the fight goes. Every time he's got some space, it's a front kick to the body. He's working the body. Knees in the clinch. And Njikawani starts fading. And look, Rodriguez had clubbed him to the head a few times with that body work added up and then just relentless pressure. And he just kind of wilts. Uh, big comeback from Rodriguez again. One of the one of the worst cuts I've seen in a long time. I mean, I, I mean the one on Song was actually kind of clean. Like the edges of the cut were pretty clean. This was like this was jagged. I mean, he got stitched up. He's probably I mean, he should be fine. It, it's ultimately that's all it is is a cut, but. It was a bad cut. It was a really bad cut. Um, Rodriguez is... He's... I don't know that he's ever going to get all that far in the division, but he has not had a bad fight since coming to the UFC. He has been a very fan-friendly fighter. Uh, kind of ditto in Jaquani, who's... I don't know... Like, these guys are kind of going to perpetually occupy this kind of spot. Either co-main on lesser fight nights or maybe featured fight on bigger fight nights. They're 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 never gonna have bad fights, but they're also I don't think ever really gonna be main event caliber players. But uh, I mean that does remain to be seen. You know, at least in the case, I mean Rodriguez is what four and one in the UFC now. Yeah, and his loss was a split decision to Armin Petrosian. I kind of thought he won that one. So, I, I just don't think that Rodriguez will wind up getting all that high in the rankings fighting these kinds of fights. There's a there's a pretty uh, obvious ceiling on most fighters who engage in this kind of fighting. It's very fan-friendly. I certainly enjoyed it. But you're almost never going to become a champion. So, that was your... And that was your uh, co-main. Wild little fight. Gnarly cut. All right, next up. The rest of these are going to go pretty quick. Um, Andre Feely defeats Bill Algio via split decision. 29-28. I thought Feely won. I'm not quite sure I can get to 29-28 for Algio. But this was a decent enough little fight. Uh, Algio's got some tools. But there's some refinement that needs to go on there. I mean, he got hit with some head kicks in the first round here that... Dude's got a chin. Um, he got cut, too. Uh, one of the head kicks that was landed opened him up near the hairline. Um, which, I mean, if you're going to get cut up there is kind of where you want to get cut. It's almost never going to flow directly down into your eyes. It's not really in a dangerous spot, so to speak, so... 
But uh, he landed some. He had some good combination work, but uh, Feely just you know, he had the more damaging strikes in the first, and then in the third he spent most of it on Algio's back after getting a takedown. Um, Feely, minor note. Feely after the fight revealing that uh, his I believe wife uh, miscarried what would have been their first child uh, at some point during his prep for this fight. Um, man, that's heartbreaking. Like that that's just I it, 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 it's tragic, man. It's just tragic. It's uh it's awful. I mean, that that's a that's a genuinely terrible thing to have to go through. So I've look, I've kind of memed on Feely on occasion for his career and some of his fights and whatnot, and I just I uh, um, to need to take a moment here to just acknowledge like that that's a terrible thing to have to go through and for whatever value my sympathies are uh, he and his wife have them that again that's awful but he he needed the win so that um, we had a few guys fighting on emotion last night now let's see middleweight Joe Pfeiffer defeated Alan Emadovsky via TKO punches 355 with the first not a great fight um, pretty pretty boring until the finish. Um, Pfeiffer lands a right hand, drops Amadovsky. Amadovsky's not really a UFC caliber fighter. He's like 0-4 in the promotion now. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know what Pfeiffer's ceiling is going to wind up being. He's got some heavy hands, so there's that, but... I don't know, I just... I need to see a lot more. And... You know, Dana White seems to like him, so I imagine he'll be around for a little bit. Um, heavyweights. Heavyweights. Tanner Bo... Uh, excuse me. Rodrigo Nascimento defeated Tanner Bozer via split decision. There was a 29-28 each way, and then a 30-27 for Nascimento that I just cannot endorse. Um, I think I scored this for Nascimento, which is... Like, I don't object to him winning at all. At 30-27, though, man. That, uh, that, that seemed wrong. Um, this was low-level heavyweight stuff. It was funny, though, uh, Nascimento after the fight saying, you know, Dana, I don't want a $50,000 check. My favorite boxer's boxing in a little bit. Could you get me tickets to Triple G and Canelo 3? And my immediate thought was, you know, depending on how close he is to ringside, that's actually more expensive than the bonus he would have gotten. Uh... Uh, I, I don't believe he got tickets. <laughs> Just for the record. Don't think he got tickets to the fight. Uh, and kicking off the main card, Anthony Hernandez defeated Marc-Andre Barrio via technical submission, arm triangle choke. 153 of the third. Hernandez is just a dog, man. And I mean that as a compliment. Like He'll get after it. He'll get hit. He'll keep throwing. He's got a little bit of the kind of Habib-style wrestling. You know, that lets you get going enough to mat return you, lets you expend some more energy. Mat return, move to position, ground and pound, sub attempt. Let you, you know, make you keep working like that. He's got a little bit of that in him. Now, obviously not quite at Khabib's pace. He fights at middleweight. But there's a little bit of that kind of same fighting style going on there. Uh, so, solid enough win for Hernandez. Uh, Hernandez is a pretty legitimate guy to keep your eye on at middleweight. Um, Barrio is, 
who he is at this point. I mean, he's a guy who tends... The only way he seems to get wins is to let his opponent exhaust themselves beating him up in the first. Then either take over in the second and win rounds two and three, or also drop the second but start enduring and putting on damage and then getting a third round finish. Um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot for that one. Just uh, not Again, Hernandez, watch his mat return to some of his control and whatnot. It, that's pretty good. Uh, that's your main card as for the prelims. Damon Jackson defeated Pat Sabatini via TKO punches. It's kind of a verbal submission, apparently, as well in there. Um, punches from, like, mount slash back mount, kind of floating between the positions. 109 of the first. Um, Jackson mentioned, and this was brought up, like, by a commentary and whatnot in the pre-fight stuff, so it was known. His older brother, who is apparently right around my age, uh, passed away, like, Tuesday. Like, fight week. His brother passed. Uh, so he came out and you could see that all kind of come out of him after it was done. He came out and just... A lot of the money was on Pat Sabatini. I forget who I picked here. Because I remember talking about how this may be going either way. Sabatini was the kind of, you know, the hot up-and-comer. But sometimes those guys on decent streaks and whatnot, they wind up fighting someone who's just wily enough and veteran enough to make him pay and that was kind of jackson hit this really nice front kick very early in the fight got on top and just relentless offense from top position uh a really good win for jackson at welterweight trevin giles defeated lewis kosi via unanimous decision 130 27 229 28 this fight sucked oh this fight sucked I don't know that because of how I do commentary I don't or coverage I don't think of it in these terms but I think if you asked me to write a full-blown paragraph describing a round I don't know that I could do it. I mean I could because I can be as, I can be as needlessly verbose as necessary. But man this was a nothing fight. But hey, guy came hey that Kosi fellow came in from the contender series, right? Yeah. Um, also from the Contender Series, Denise Gomes. She got beat up by Loma Lukbunmi. I, I shouldn't be so dismissive of that. This was actually a pretty good fight. Um, Lukbunmi pretty clearly takes the first two rounds. First real exchange of the fight. Like, Gomes pushes forward, throws a punch, and Lukbunmi cracks her with a counter elbow that opens up a cut uh, around the left eyebrow. It was around the outside. It wasn't nearly a fight stopper. But, Cut. Um, look, Bunmi just the better fighter at distance, strong clinch game. Um, a lot of people from that Muay Thai background, they can develop really good ground and pound once you, because a lot of them are very used to fighting in the clinch. So they're used to generating power and whatnot over short distances. Um, you get them done doing some ground and pound drills. They can pick that up very, very quickly because there's a lot of crossover in that skill set. So look, Bunmi good pretty good control some good damage some nice trips you know again her clinch game is strong third round gomes knows she's kind of getting her butt kicked comes out pushes the pace immediately lands a couple of good strikes gets a takedown gets the back uh isn't able to fully kind of convert it and look bunmi ends the round actually on top doing damage 
this was a good little fight and a uh, pretty solid win for Look Bunmi, who should a pretty exciting strawweight. Um, at lightweight, Trey Ogden defeated Daniel Zellhuber via unanimous decision, 230-27s, 129-28. Ah, uh, that Zellhuber guy, another contender series. Contender series guys did not have a good night. <laughs> and I've got to stop ragging on him. Uh, I really have to do Um, Ogden was set up here. He was very clearly set up. Zellhuber's the guy who's looked better. Just, he has. Zellhuber just did not deliver. Ogden just kept a good pace, kept consistent work, pretty good defense, and Zellhuber never really got out of second gear. So, solid win for Ogden. I imagine that's, an, that's a win that will age quite well, assuming Zellhuber is able to show the form that he has shown outside of the UFC, inside of the UFC. Uh, women's flyweight action. Jillian Robertson defeated Maria Agapova via technical submission, a rear naked choke, 219 of the second. This was pretty much exactly what you'd expect. Uh, Agapova had a pretty good first round, still struggled in places, but... Did a fair amount of damage, actually. And then second round, gets taken down again. Gets her back taken, gets choked out. Um, if you want to see some of the nuance of how to finish a rear naked choke that is gable grip instead of either figure four or even S-grip, we'll leave S-grip aside. You very rarely see S-grip rear naked chokes. Not never, but it's rare. In fact, I can only think of really one. I mean, I, I'm sure if I really thought about it, I could come up with others, but the only one I can think of off the top of my head was, um, sort of been the second fight, I believe, between Davis and Figueredo and Joseph Benavidez. When, uh, Figueredo chokes Benavidez unconscious, he actually winds up fighting his grip. Um, it starts a bit more figure four, Benavidez fights the top hand, Figueredo switches that grip to palm to palm, Benavidez still is fighting it. And he winds up switching to an S-grip. So you kind of really get the grip and hands hidden behind the shoulder. And that's where he's able to fully finish the choke. But you don't see, you don't see those very often. But if you, again, if you want to see some of the nuance of how to do gable grip uh, finishes from there, watch the end here because Robertson has to make a handful of adjustments to her technique along the way before she finally uh, puts Agapova to sleep. Uh, Bantamweight... Uh, Javid Basharat defeated Tony Gravely via unanimous decision. Uh, 29-28 across the board. There was a cut in this fight, too. There was an accidental clash of heads. Wasn't even really a clash. I mean, I saw you see the replay. They don't actually bang heads together the way you might think of normally. They just kind of graze each other, and it's enough to open up a cut on Basharat. Um... Turned out, that fight, man, again, that was the second fight of the night, turned out to be pretty... There was a lot of amateur plastic surgery going on on this card. There was a lot of cuts. But Basharat had a tough first round, but got through it. Gravely's had cardio issues for a while. So Basharat kind of endures a rough first round in places, then takes over, longer-range weapons, counter-wrestling, um... Javid's brother earned his way into the into the UFC recently, so there's two Basharats. Um, he looked okay here. You know, he's he's claiming that in 18 months he'll be in title contention. I find that a ambitious claim. Not very likely, but I you know, fighters always think like this about themselves. 
Like, you kind of have to, to be honest. Like, the, the self-belief you have to have to get into a cage with another human being and fight them for money, you can't have a lot of doubt in your head uh, when you go into that. I mean, even fighters who talk about being scared and whatnot, like, it's good that there is that space, but if you don't, like, you don't sign a fight that you don't think you can win. You might still be nervous, but, and think about that for just a second. You, know, you have to believe in yourself so much that you believe I can physically beat this other human being. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's, if you go into that kind of situation, if you go into combat like that with doubt in your head, that will go badly for you. So, I appreciate, I appreciate his, um, his belief in himself. But Bantamweight's a hard division, man. It's a hard division. And kicking everything off, Nicholas Moda defeated Cameron Van Camp via TKO uh, punches 349 of the first. Van Camp's defense is a pretty serious liability. Uh, and Moda finally got a decent enough read on the distance and cracked him with a left hook. You heard him more than once before that. Um, solid enough win for Moda, but I don't know that Van Camp should be in the UFC. Uh, that was the event. Uh, again, it wasn't great. There were some moments. Um, you had some it's a high again some high quality <laughs> some high quality facial rearrangement that went on in places. But I think the only things that really matter, you know, main event, co-main event for the insanity. Um, that's kind of it. There's not a whole lot else. I mean, Jack, what Jackson did to Pat Sabatini was was nice. And then I suppose look Bunmi and Gomes. But those would be the ones that, like I think would probably be worth your time if you haven't already seen all of them. I mean, there was a, there were some moments, man, like. Right before Jackson and Sabatini, when I think kind of collectively on Twitter, you know, those of us watching this were kind of like, why do we do this to ourselves again? It was not a very strong group of prelims. I mean, the, and some of that was just like Giles and a chunk of that was Giles and Kosi being just the worst. Like, just the worst. But it was... I mean, look, they're not all going to be winners. We all know this. Some of these are just going to be click the machinery over, get the get another event out there, get us closer to our contractually mandated minimums. We all get it. And I've talked before, and others have as well, about the, the three tiers of UFC content these days. You get the pay-per-views. Then you, you don't even... It used to be that you had, like, pay-per-view... ESPN cards, ESPN Plus cards. And the and there were some good ESPN Plus cards. Now it's actually a bit... I've talked about this before. It's a little bit different. Now you've got, like, pay-per-view. Then whether you're on ESPN or ESPN Plus, if you're in a real venue with live fans, and then there's the stuff at the APAC. Like, those are our new three tiers. Um, especially now that they can tour again. I mean, there was a... Uh, it should be noted. You know, there is a period of time when, okay, everything's at the apex because that was the state of the world. Can't fault, you know, stuff at that point. But nowadays, like, you can... Those three tiers of content are pretty obvious. 
Um, your fight of the night I mentioned was Gregory Rodriguez and Chidi and Jaquani. It's the kind of fight Dana White loves. Performances of the night went to Joe Pfeiffer and Damon Jackson. Can't really argue against that. Um, again, if it's me and my sensibilities, I might go more Sandhagen and Song for fight of the night because I was more interested, but... Rodriguez and Njikwani was more dramatic, and that seems to be that that plays a role in how Dana you know hands those things out, or whoever the UFC official is that decides them. I assume Dana. I assume he has like the most say. Um, but I don't think anyone kind of got screwed as far as not getting. I mean, maybe you could argue Anthony Hernandez, but oh, dude, I forgot to mention this. Forgot to mention this about Hernandez and Barrio. We got real close to our first UFC death. Hernandez in the, I think it was the third round. Um, he's going for a mat return. And he hoists Barrio's legs out from under him, lifts him up, and then like brings him down. And he, Barrio's, the reason this wasn't illegal despite spiking Barrio on his head, is more to do with Barrio's arms being free. Both of his hands are out. The rules against spiking are really... Like, the big thing that determines whether or not it's a foul is not actually how they land on their head, which seems really weird and counterproductive and counterintuitive, but it's a lot more how much position the guy being slammed has to defend himself. Which again, like it's it's really badly worded. I'm I'm not saying we should allow spiking. Okay, I'm not. I'm okay with that being one of the lines we draw. We don't want broken necks. Cool. I'm okay with that. But if we're saying you can't spike someone, this was a spike. Uh, look, Barrio's hands were free. I get it. But he came down almost straight like, perpendicular to the ground, on the top of his head. I mean, I'm pretty sure, like, if he was taking a nap, Big E, the WWE wrestler, like, woke up in a cold sweat. No idea why. But, uh, because that, that like, that's the kind of flashback, right? even though Big E's was in a very different position in some respects. But that's kind of how he broke his neck, when he, he and the guy he was working with had a timing issue doing a belly-to-belly suplex on the floor, and Big E landed pretty much on his head and broke one of his vertebrae, and now he's not been seen since. I mean, he's he doesn't have to wear the neck brace anymore, last I heard, but they're still waiting for the uh, the the vertebrae that broke to re-ossify, to harden. So, uh, yeah... I'm, uh, we're going to keep an eye on Barrio here, like, make sure nothing happened to him, because he could easily have jacked up his neck in a bad way on that one. So, again, maybe Hernandez you could have made an argument for, but ultimately I don't have any real objection to the bonus winners here, so. That was the event. If you want my full, my live round-by-round scoring, as well as clips and pics of finishes and whatnot... That's in the MMA Zone of Forward One Mania.com. Feel free to give it a listen. Listen. Give it a read. I don't know that we pay for a transcript. If you do, I don't know. If you do text to speech stuff, I guess, you could maybe make it work. Uh, as a listen. 
Anyway, that's over there. If you happen to be following along live when I was doing this, I thank you very much, as always, for doing so. All right. Uh, let's move on to Canelo Alvarez and Triple G3. I'm going to be brief here. Because this fight took place and I got to watch it. I, I try to watch the bigger boxing bouts. And there's a few smaller ones that t catch my interest that I watch. Because I like boxing. And There was some wonkiness on the scorecards here. Which for some stupid reason is just par for the course. With That's not on the two fighters, by the way. Just for the record. But two of the judges had like five. I think two of the judges gave... Um, they gave Triple G five rounds. I mean, I didn't listen to the scorecards being read out. I got done with the 12th round, like, okay, Canelo wins. And not in a meme way. Like, I, I joke about Canelo winning all the time. But I got done with that 12th round, and I went, I gave Triple G one round. I gave him the ninth. You could make an argument for... Trying to remember. The, if you want to watch this fight, the um, if you, all you want is entertainment, I'm going to stress that. If all you want is the entertainment, rounds 9 through 12, that's it. The first eight rounds are not interesting if all you want is entertainment value. Canelo slows down a bit in the ninth, and Triple G starts actually putting on some pressure and throwing some punches. And that's when things get you know, a little bit more interesting. But I was rooting for Triple G. But um, yeah, I gave him the ninth. Gave him the ninth. That was it. Kind of figure that there's some judge who's going to give him another round. Um, I think one of the official scorecards was 10 to 2. So they gave him... Or was it three? Was it nine to three? Might have been nine to three. Look, the first round of this fight is hard, hard to score. Hard to score because there's not a lot that happens. The first round is very tentative from both fighters. I gave the first to Canelo, but I will I will freely acknowledge the first round could have gone to Triple G because there's just not a lot to judge there. So maybe. I could be convinced for two rounds. And if you wanted to squint real hard and give Triple G, I think it wasn't the 10th. I remember he wins the 9th, and then Canelo actually responded pretty good. It might have been the 11th. I can't remember if it was 11 or 12, but there's one other of those final four rounds that Triple G does well enough in to argue to have a case for winning it. I didn't think he won it, but to have a case. So... My opinion, the best you can do for Triple G is three rounds. My opinion, the best. So somehow, two of the judges give him five. Look, I am... I don't have a lot of patience for the politics and the... Uh, the BS around boxing, around Canelo in particular. And let, me, let, me, let me stress this. Not all of that is his fault. Canelo works hard, and he is a he is no worse than the fourth best boxer in the world. Fourth or fifth? Could you could you argue five? 
And I think you'd have above him. So again, if we're talking this, we're talking pound for pound. And how, like, which criteria you rate when you talk about pound for pound makes a lot of difference. For my criteria, it's just skills. I don't care. It's not about your dominance. It's not about, like, your history. I, I don't care. And that might seem disingenuous in some respects to the fighters, but if we're talking who's the pound for pound best fighter in the world, it's all about your skills and how they match up with other skills regardless of size. Has nothing to do with your winning streak. A little to do with your winning streak. Can't say nothing. But no, this guy's the champion. He's the unified champion of this weight class, and that's an impressive feat. No lie. That's an impressive feat doesn't get you a whole lot more when we're talking pound for pound. So, who would you have above Canelo? Tell you who I might have above him. I don't know if you might feel differently. Um, the guys I might rank above him. Um, Alexander Usyk. Terence Crawford. Uh, Naoya Inouye. Would I put Lomachenko above him? I don't know about that one. I love Lomachenko. Like, I love Lomachenko. But... So, I mean, again, like... He is no worse than the fifth best boxer in the world. He's really good. And that needs to be acknowledged more often than it is by people who get fed up with some of the circus around him and some of the circus that he brings. But the man works hard. You don't achieve his level of success without doing so. And he's 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 great. He is one of the most successful and one of the best boxers of his era. He might wind up being the defining boxer of this era. Like after Floyd retired, who's the man? Right? Who's been the who's been the boxer of the post Floyd Money Mayweather box world of boxing? Now, there's been some heavyweight action that you have to pay attention to. You've got some guys down around the 130s who are really really good, but they haven't been able to make. They've been able to get together. We're still waiting on Terence Crawford and Errol Spence. That seems to be getting closer to happening, so please. Can't tell you how much I would love that fight. Um, you've got guys like Lomachenko, um, who developed a pretty big... like. You've got talented fighters, but who's the guy kind of carrying the sport? It's Alvarez. It's Canelo. That's... That might wind up... You know, look... Ten years from now, when we revisit some of this discussion, is that is is that like the most ringing endorsement we can give to his career, or does it wind up being damning with faint praise because the era has struggled in some respects? In some respects, it's been great, and some others, it's struggled. Uh, that's that's just reality. So, want to make sure I I give the man his flowers. You know, he's been a champion in four different weight classes. Like well, like super welterweight, like welter, welterweight, super welterweight, middleweight, super middleweight, and light heavyweight. Was he five? Did he skip one of those? Let me double check this. Um, 
I wish to be I wish to be uh, certain about this. Four weight classes, okay. So, oh, light middleweight, middleweight. Is it light middleweight, middleweight, light heavyweight? What am I missing there? Uh, oh, light middleweight or super welterweight. Middleweight, super middleweight, and light heavyweight, okay. And he's the undisputed super middleweight champion. Like, he's got all the belts. You know, the man's... Uh, Why give him his flowers? But there's a. Uh, I felt so bad for Triple G in this fight. Well, let me let me go at it from this angle. Um, if you look back at the rivalry between these two, it's go. I think historically, you not because they fought this many times, but if we're gonna talk narrative. This rivalry reminds me of Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Hagler. And hear me out. I know some of you might have just thrown something if you know anything about the boxing history I just referenced, but hear me out, please. Couple of things to consider. One, Canelo waited Triple G out for their first fight. That fight was supposed to happen a couple of years before it did, or at least a year before it did. Second, wonky scoring in the first fight. Look, that first fight, Golovkin got screwed. There is no other way to phrase that. Adelaide Bird's scorecard in favor of Canelo is maybe the worst scorecard turned in for a boxing event in a long time. I can't say ever, but in a long time. And that judge who scored it a draw, I forget which judge. Like, that's a terrible scorecard for that fight too, by the way. Golovkin got screwed. Second fight. I scored the second fight for Golovkin personally. However, I will acknowledge that one's closer. That's a much more competitive fight than their first fight. Still think Golovkin should have won... But that one, that's a slightly murkier fight. Then we wait four years. Golovkin is 40. He's 40. And they have this fight at super middleweight, which is not, uh, Golovkin, he's never, I don't think, I can't say he's never fought that high enough to double check, but that's not his optimal weight class. Uh, and commentary, the commentary for this fight was awful. Never mind. The UFC commentary that night was not great. Daniel Cormier just... Like, there's a couple of points, uh, like the Giles and um, Kosey fight, where commentary is just desperately trying to fill the air with something, because the fight is nothing. I'm forgiving of that. But there's a lot of nonsense talk from Cormier in particular over like even the Rodriguez Ninja Kawani fight like just ugh. but commentary for uh, the Alvarez and Triple G fight somewhat predictably was just all over Canelo just hanging off of that man's nuts but one of the things that was mentioned that I think is true 
look at these two physically at 168. Canelo filled out to 168 much better than Triple G did. Um, now, Golovkin is still the middleweight champion. So, but again, like at 40, you know, four years removed, like, That four years was everything. Canelo has maybe flown cl- too close to the sun in certain respects. In terms of his aspirations and whatnot, you know, losing to Bivol and so on. But he's also really kind of found himself at this point in his career. And Triple G is just, he's near the end. He's very near the end. And I mean, again, the guy's 40. You don't see boxers at that age in those weight classes being that successful. The fact that he has been is a monumental testament to his ability. So why does this fight, why does this rivalry remind me of Leonard and Hagler? Well, you have the waiting. Leonard waited a long time and he kind of screwed Hagler over more than once before they got in the ring together. Um, he waited until Hagler started suffer- slowing down, uh, had some knee injury issues that altered his style a little bit before he was willing to accept the fight. So there's the waiting game. There's the scorecards. You know, Hagler got... He got the raw end of every possible deal. Uh, throughout most of his career, did Marvin Hagler. Uh, and I I can't re-watch. I didn't watch Hagler Hearns, or Hagler Hearns, I've seen that plenty of times. I did not watch Hagler and Leonard live when it happened. Uh, but I watched it, I wound up watching it once. I already knew the outcome. It's an older fight, but I, I I watched it. I can't watch it again. It it's infuriating to watch that fight and know what happens. It 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 boils the blood. It just is. It's tragic. Like, it's genuinely tragic. To know everything that Marvin Hagler fought through, all the times he was avoided, all the times he got screwed by promoters, or all the... He wasn't... When he won the title in his weight class, by the way, I don't know if you all remember this, he beat a a British gentleman in England and uh, stopped him via cuts, I seem to recall. Uh, Bad cuts, too. He beat the crap out of that guy, because Marvin Hagler was a beast. But the fans in attendance kind of rioted. He was not presented with the belt in the ring because people were throwing crap in the ring. Like as a safety precaution, they got him out of the arena. Uh, if you look at his, if you look at his career earnings for a lot of it. Um, Sugar Ray Leonard in particular, because I brought him up, he was the he was the chosen one. He's the poster boy. 
He's got the commercial endorsements. He had the Olympic pedigree. He made like 10 times the amount for his first professional fight that Hagler did for his, uh, not just his pro debut, but like some of his earlier bigger fights, actually. So there's, there's the financial disparity. There's the scorecard, again, the scorecard issue, where Canelo gets every possible benefit at every possible opportunity. And lastly, and here's where I think this really hits home, and there's other rivalries that this has been true of as well, um, for a variety of reasons, but... <sighs> Boxing loves Canelo. And when I say boxing, I don't just mean a couple of the power brokers. I don't just mean the judges. I don't just mean the fans. Because Canelo has his detractors, and he has his fanatical supporters, and sure, that's that's normal. But when I say the sport loves him, it's not always... Um, I'm going to reference another guy who has a very different... Maybe it might have had a very different and more contentious love relationship, but it was a very impassioned one still, from the majority of it at least. But it it's it's the sports writers, the talking writers, podcasters, it's all the media, the talking heads, it's the fans, it's the promoters, it's the commission officials, and I don't mean this as there there's some kind of cabal that is supporting Canelo from underneath. Not saying there isn't, but when I say that boxing loves someone, it's kind of the collected manifestation of all of that. You know, are there promoters who might not like Canelo? Sure. I'm sure there are. Are there some judges who won't score fights for him? I mean, they'll never be they'll never be hired to judge his fights, but I'm sure there are. Are there fans who don't like him? Yeah, there's a lot of fans who don't like him, believe it or not. So it, it is not universal adoration when I say that boxing loves him. But when you take all the disparate elements that kind of make up the collective experience, the essence that is boxing, there are boxers historically and contemporarily and in the future that the distilled essence of boxing loves. And there are fighters that it does not. Boxing loves Canelo. He is good box office. He is a compared. He's a compelling draw. People like talking about him. People like breaking down his fights technically. People respect his what he has done, what he's capable of doing. Commissions like working with him, to the extent that they are willing to give him passes on certain things, even. But it's just everything that goes into making boxing boxing kind of is in favor of Canelo's existence at a bare minimum, right? He drives traffic, he's interesting, etc., 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 etc. Boxing loves Canelo. Boxing does not love Triple G. And you can argue it should. He is an exceptional boxer, had a great amateur career, won an Olympic medal, 
for a long time, he was fighting consistently when other fighters weren't. He was reliably, like three times a year, you're getting a Triple G fight. And he's going to knock somebody out. And iron chin, piston jab, power technique. He was the guy that boxing claims that it wants for years. He was the guy that so many people in boxing say, why can't we get X? And here's Golovkin actively fighting, giving you what you claim you want, but you don't actually want it. What you want is a different fighter to behave like that. Those are not the same things, believe it or not. They are not the same things at all. To further my, to go back to my comparison, boxing loved Sugar Ray Leonard. Again, he had the big endorsement deals. He had the Olympic gold medal. He had the clean-cut image. He was the one willing to you know, go on and do the media tours and whatnot. And he was a a diligent boxer again Leonard's Leonard's actual abilities are so overshadowed by the last years of his career it's a it's a real shame because much as I am not a fan to deny his capabilities is to deny reality itself he was very good he was great he was legitimately great Ultimately, what made the difference for him more than once, especially down the stretch of his career when he's getting these dubious decisions, boxing loved Sugar Ray Leonard. Boxing did not love Marvin Hagler. You can argue it should have. I will die on that hill alongside you. It should have. But it didn't. And that fight with Leonard was when Hagler, I think, finally realized it. I mean, he was he was having, you know, knee issues anyway, and he wasn't the guy he used to be in some respects. And how could he be? He'd been fighting forever. Had a lot of fights. But I think that fight... I, he'd been on the wrong end of bad decisions before. In fact, his early, his only loss for a long time was a decision so bad. After it was announced back in the locker room, the promoter of the event came back to Hagler in his camp and apologized. Like, that's how bad it was. But I, I think he just realized it, and I think it broke his heart. In addition to all the physical stuff that was slowing him down, the knowledge that this thing, that he had given so much of himself and his health and his life and his time to doing, did not love him back and would never love him back. Just, that, that's crushing, man. And I think that's what happened. I think that's the story in a lot of respects about Canelo and Triple G. This third fight, again. It's a Canelo win. It's not even close. After the seventh or eighth round, I was, I, I think I tweeted, like, what are we doing here? Why are we doing this? Like, there's no point to this continuing. It was just sad. 
Like, Triple G wasn't doing anything. He was kind of poking the jab, occasionally would have a cross behind it, but he wasn't, like, there was no heat on it. He had, he was, he put no power into anything he did. It was just, again, it was just sad. Well, he obviously in the ninth did enough to kind of, okay, here's why we're still doing this. But it just, it still wasn't good. And again, the guy's 40. And I think he's going to have to reconcile with the fact that, yeah, he got, look, I, I said it, man. That first fight, he got screwed. Second fight, I thought he won, but I, I, I can't say he got screwed anymore. I think he won, but I I can acknowledge that it was not wasn't the same level of robbery as their first fight. And now he's 40 and he just lost the most decisive way he could have lost sort of getting stopped and the man has an indestructible chin. I mean in all of his amateur and professional fights combined he's never been knocked down, which is absurd. But I, I think he just has to reconcile with the fact that boxing does not love him. And it sucks. It really sucks. But I think that's reality. Um, oh, for the record. The other, the other kind of rivalry that I think of frequently when I think about rivalries between fighters who one is loved by boxing and one is not... Might seem odd, but again, hear me out. I think a little bit about Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Now, Frazier was obviously a very successful heavyweight champion, so, but Hagler was a successful champion, Triple G was a successful champion. It doesn't mean boxing loves you. And he got a win over Ali the first time they fought, so he at least got that. And again, like, uh, there were giant segments of the population that hated Muhammad Ali. So when I say boxing loved him, I don't mean they were in love with him. I don't mean he was a beloved figure at all times. But they loved to hate him. And that's still love, believe it or not. Like that level of interest and obsession. Boxing loved Muhammad Ali. Boxing did not love Joe Frazier. And the fans in particular, when it comes to Joe Frazier, the fans did not love Joe Frazier. And it is a it is a crying shame, man. You know, he was, for a long time in his life, Joe Frazier was a very bitter man. And for very understandable reasons. He, I mean, he fought out of Philly. They put up a statue of a fictional character before they put up a statue of the real champion and one of the best heavyweights ever. They'd rather put up a statue of Rocky Balboa than of Smoke and Joe Frazier. Again, I, I don't encourage people to hang on to resentments. I don't. It's not healthy. It's not good for you. But if you ask me if I understand why Joe Frazier was bitter, I do. Do I understand why Marvin Hagler walked away from boxing after that Leonard fight, not just for physical reasons, and never in a million years even considered looking back? Yeah. Dude, Hagler got out of boxing 
and was more successful afterwards in a lot of respects. He moved to Italy. He married a beautiful actress. Actress, He married a beautiful woman. And he was a movie star. I mean, I know that's because of Italian movies, but he, he was a pretty big movie star in Italy. I mean, the hilarious bit about all this, believe it or not, um, years after their fight, uh, Leonard was still kind of fighting, and he actually had his people kind of reach out to Hagler, who's, again, retired, living in Italy, making movies. They actually kind of reached out to him about maybe having a rematch, and I have to imagine Hagler's response was just laughter. Uh, he never, Hagler, to his credit, man, he never held on to those resentments, and he could have. He really could have. But that, that's my thing about that, about Canelo and Triple G. I, I don't have a whole lot technically to break down. Again, Triple G didn't do a whole lot for the majority of the fight. But I, I think ultimately, especially if you look at that first fight, boxing just didn't love Triple G. And it does love Canelo. And... I don't know if anyone listens to this who's ever going to be in a position where this advice matters, but hear me out on this, guys. If you ever find yourself in a position where you're not loved by your sport and you're fighting someone who is, you better knock them out. It's not impossible to win decisions. It's not. But you you have to make it emphatic. Like, you can't leave doubt. There can be nothing there. Because the sport will find every possible justification to go with the one it loves over the one it doesn't. Boxing loved Sugar Ray Leonard. It did not love Marvin Hagler. Boxing loves Canelo Alvarez. It does not love Triple G. Well, on that somewhat depressing note, let's get more depressing. Um, oh, I forgot to mention it, but let me do so now since we're finally out of the stuff from the weekend. There is no UFC event this weekend, this Saturday. The next one is October 1st, and it is... Ooh, That is not a good card. It, it currently stands. Let me read this to you very briefly. We'll do a full preview next week, so come back for that, but briefly. Main event, Mackenzie Dern and Yan Shaunan. That is not a great main event. Uh, Sadiq Youssef, who was supposed to fight um, Giga Chikadze. That would have been a very good fight, actually. Um, was that it? Not listed here. I'm 90% sure that was it. I'm going to continue though. Anyway, he's now fighting a late replacement, um, Don Shanus. Welterweight fight between Francisco Trinaldo and Randy Brown. Might not be terrible. Um, Hani Barcelos versus Trevin Jones. Tabitha Ricci versus Jessica Penne. John Castaneda against Daniel Santos. Leah Letson and Chelsea Chandler. Joaquin Silva, Jesse Ronson, Randy Costa, Guido Canetti. Brent, uh, Brendan Allen and Christoph Yatko, that has some potential. Heavyweights, Jarzinho Rosenstrike and Chris Dawkins. Mike Davis and Vyas, uh, Vyacheslav Borshlov, Borshev. 
Vyacheslav Borshev. I've been working on that one, actually. Uh, Maxim Grishin and Philippe Linz. Ilya Latifi and Alexi Olenek. That'll be weird. And Cody Garbrandt was supposed to fight Ronnie Yaya. That fight fell apart due to a Yaya injury. There is looking... UFC is currently looking for a replacement to fight Cody Garbrandt and Garbrandt's return to Bantamweight. That is not a good card. We will give you a full preview next week. So, tune in for that. All right, news of the week. All right. Um, last week, news broke a little bit after I was done recording the episode. That UFC veteran, I uh, won the season of The Ultimate Fighter, Elias Theodoru passed away at the age of 34? 35? Um, I want to double check this. 34. Younger than I am. Uh, he passed away after a battle with cancer. Um, I forget what kind. Let's see real fast. Have they made that public? I want to make sure I'm quoting from a... Yeah, okay. Um, he had um, uh, colon cancer that had metastasized into his liver. Oh, that's awful. Um, look, man, 34 is just too young for pretty much anyone. I mean, we could single out individual people who either went on to do terrible things or whatnot, but, like, for the vast majority of humanity, 34 is just too young. Um, I was not always complimentary to Theodoru's fighting style because some of his fights I didn't like, and I'm here to tell the truth about that. But he always seemed like a very happy guy. You didn't hear a lot of stories, of, uh, hear a lot of negative stories about him. So whatever, again, like whatever my issues with some of his fights not being very good were, you know, 34, man, he's just too young. And cancer is, God. I'm going to try, I, I try not to swear on this, so I'm not going to say the traditional epithet, but uh, screw cancer. So I, I mean, I watched all of his UFC career. You know, I covered he. I believe I covered his uh, debut when he won the Ultimate Fighter. Those Bisbing and Kennedy. Yeah, 14, 2014. I think I covered every one of his UFC fights. His, I think I think I covered his entire career. Man, that fight with Bronson that he uh, left the UFC after. Oh, that was a terrible fight. <laughs> so bad. But. Yeah, that just sucks. That just sucks. All right, speaking of things that suck, we're downer episode this week, man. Well, maybe not quite as down for this next one. MMA legend, former WEC and UFC featherweight champion Jose Aldo has officially announced his retirement, and he has been released by the promotion. He had one fight left on his UFC deal. He's retired, and he is, again, removed from the roster. We all, look, we all knew this was coming. You know, Aldo's been fighting forever. And he's had some wars. He's had some genuinely great fights. His second fight with Chad Mendez is one of my favorite fights ever. That thing is awesome. That is an awesome fight. 
If you haven't seen it, please look it up. The fact that he had a second career kind of reinvention at bantamweight, of all weights. For the longest time, like he had a hard time making 145. The speculation was he'd fight at lightweight. When he announced he was cutting to bantamweight, we all thought, well, that's it. Writing's on the wall. He's done. This is a bad decision. Turns out he was a very competitive bantamweight. You don't, you don't see that very often, but he was. You know, late in your career to go down in weight class and find good success. Uh, very rare. He is... Um, Aldo's one of the greats. Uh, I, I mentioned this. Uh, th- this news kind of leaked, I think, a few weeks back. Several weeks, maybe, where Marab Dwellish really gave an interview saying that Aldo told him when they were kind of sharing a moment in the cage after their fight at uh, uh, 278, that Aldo told him he was going to retire. And my response had kind of been, you get two guys who English is not their first language in an emotional moment. I'm going to wait and see what happens, whether or not anything comes of that. Well, I think last week or the week before, Andre Pedineras, uh, Jose Aldo's longtime head coach, mentioned that he kind of thought it was time for Aldo to retire. Uh, and those two have been through thick and thin together, man. So I, I think we all knew the writing was pretty much on the wall here. Um, apparently Aldo and his wife did welcome, uh, I believe their first, I believe their first child, certainly their first son, if not, uh, their first child like today as well. So my, my congratulations to the, to that family, man. You know, I have so many great memories of Jose Aldo. Um, this is a guy who, if you look s- skill for skill, one of the very best to ever do it. Had a ridiculously long streak of success. If you never saw younger Jose Aldo, especially when he was in the WEC, please look him up. Look up what he did to Jonathan Brookins. Look up what he did to Cub Swanson. He blasted Cub Swanson with a flying double knee attack in the opening seconds of their fight. He had some wonderful stoppages. When he beat Mike Brown, like that was eye-opening, man. A lot of us were picking Aldo even going into that fight. But Aldo had just beaten Uriah Faber twice. Stopped him the first time. And... Mike Brown nowadays is like, oh, you mean the coach from ATT? Yeah, he's a darn good coach. If you didn't, if you weren't watching Mike Brown when he was a fighter, you missed out. He was, he would mess your day up. And Aldo just carved through him. Um, of course, what Aldo did to Uriah Faber, man, he beat the crap out of Faber. Um, if you haven't read it. I think, who wrote it? Was it Sean Elshadi or Sean Sheehan? I forget who it was. One of those two. I want to say one of those two. They wrote a piece where they did interviews with fighters who thought Joe Zolos was ahead of, I believe this was ahead of Aldo McGregor. And it was just, it was like titled The Night We Fight, We Faced Jose Aldo. And it was interviews with a bunch of guys who had fought him. You know, Chad Mendez, Uriah Faber, Kenny Florian, Jonathan Brookins. Uh, I want to say a few others. And they just listen to the way they talk about him. 
you know, Uriah Faber mentioning that, yeah, my legs were torn up for a couple of weeks, but there was somewhere in that same fight when Aldo hit him with a knee to the chest that when Faber's legs stopped hurting, again, that was a couple of weeks, then his sternum started hurting, and that hurt for, like, years. <laughs> uh, uh, Florian mentioned it, because Florian stands southpaw. And he took some pretty serious inside leg kicks from Aldo in their fight. And he talks a bit about how, yeah, he actually, there was nerve damage. He lost feeling on the inside of his thigh for months. Could not feel sensation there. Um, Aldo at his best. And here's the other thing about Jose Aldo. There's a guy who constantly changed in some subtle ways, his style. You know, initially he was kind of this, um, just this wrecking machine of intercepting knees and wild insanity. Then he became known as this destructive kicker. That was always there a little bit, but it really sort of gaining prominence. Who would just tear your legs to pieces. And then injury started monkeying with him and what he could do, so he changed his style, became a little bit more boxing-focused a little bit more defensive you know towards the end of his career his defense is really good not impe- not impervious but really good you know this is a guy who took rounds off of max holloway even though he lost both of those fights you know he won the first round of their first fight cleanly and i think the judges had him up the first round of their second fight which i don't think i agree with but still he beat Frankie Edgar twice. If you didn't see his first fight with Frankie Edgar, that's a fun one. His second fight with Frankie Edgar is the type of fight you should study. Uh, and I know his attitude rubbed, the, rubbed some people the wrong way at times, and I get it. But that is that is one of the very best to ever do it. That is an exceptional fighter. We are not going to see a fighter like him again, maybe ever. Truly, truly one of the greats. Um, I wish him nothing but the best in what he does next in his life. Uh, Seriously. That man gave me a lot of entertainment value. And showed me things that I did not know were possible. There are fighters that do that. Aldo's one of them. He would just, some of his fights, you watched that and went, you know, y- your jaw just kind of dropped, like, wow. So I, again, I wish him all the best as his life moves forward. Uh, other people are going to write much better retrospectives on his career than I'm going to give you here, having thought about this for all of, you know, today, because that was when it was announced. Uh, yeah. You know, the, it happens to every fighter. They have to retire eventually. Uh, I'm glad he got out. I'm glad he's getting out with the with his health intact. You know, he hasn't taken a lot of tremendous beatings. He's taken some rough, he's had some rough fights. You know, Max Holloway put some damage on him in both of their fights. Jan put some damage on him. Like, he's not getting out unscathed, necessarily. 
but he doesn't seem to have some of the problems that other fighters do, health-wise. And he leaves behind, you know, if you want to know whether or not he's still the, the featherweight greatest, the other two guys who are in that discussion, and there's only two other guys at featherweight who are in the discussion at the moment, are Max Holloway and, Volkan, and Alexander Volkanovsky. I don't know that either of them will wind up... Uh, Max Holloway will not, I don't think, will surpass him. Um, he surpassed him as a fighter when they fought twice. I don't know that Holloway's body of work at featherweight exceeds that of Jose Aldo. Not sure. Um, Volkanovsky very well might. Um, he, he's just looking that good, but that's separate. When both of the guys who are in contention for that goat spot still call Jose Aldo the greatest of all time at featherweight, that should tell you a lot. Aldo's responsible for one of the best moments in MMA history. And I don't mean the stoppage here, but his first fight with Chad Mendez, it's in Rio. And when he knocks out Chad Mendez at the last second of the first round, you guys, I don't know if any of you were watching at the time. He runs out of the cage. He runs past commission officials and personnel and whatnot, out of the cage, jumps into the crowd to celebrate with the people. It's one of the craziest things. I remember watching it. I remember watching it. It was wild. It's one of the best. You don't get moments like that in MMA very often. You know, you get people climbing the cage and doing the raw thing. And if you're lucky, it's in their hometown and so they get some nice adulation. But Aldo getting all the way out to just celebrate with the people. The UFC doesn't like you doing that. The commission doesn't like you doing that for a number of reasons. It was a great moment, though. It was a truly great moment. Oh, sorry. Yawned there. Uh, he's... Yeah, he... He's one of the best. He's one of the very best in the history of the sport. And if you're not familiar with who he used to be, find his fights. Find his fights, and they speak for themselves. Uh, I'm going to miss him. I'm, you know, I'm glad that his last fight, he got the reception that he deserved. It was, it was, in, it was in Salt Lake City. So, you know. Again, about an hour from where I am. And he got the loudest pop for his walkout of anyone on that card. I don't think he got the loudest, you know, kind of by the end of the night, like the loudest singular moment all event. You know, the pop for Edwards when he knocked out Usman was monstrous. And uh, what was the other fight? There was another fight that just by the time they got like into the third round, everything was going crazy. But for walkouts, like uh, my the people of my state, they gave him the respect and the reaction that he deserved, and I'm glad he got that. So uh, again, best of luck to him. And if you are not familiar with who he used to be, please look it up. It is he was a spectacular fighter. 
All right, that's all I've got listed, so let me check Twitter, see if anything crazy is broken while I've been recording. If not, we will do plugs and get out of here. Nope, nothing crazy in the MMA sphere has broken while I've been recording. All right, so plugs. See, last week there was a movie review for the live-action Pinocchio, one directed by Robert Zemeckis and starring Tom Hanks on Disney+. There was myself, Mark Radulich, Alexis Mark Radulich, Alexis Haina, and Zachary Strobel, who stopped by, and we had a good time talking about that movie, the good, the bad, the otherwise. Uh, there is no Damn You Hollywood this week, at least not that I'm a part of, so the usual slate of professional wrestling coverage. That's AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday. MLW, if they're back to releasing stuff on Thursday, I'm going to see, the, hang on, I'm going to double check this, see if they're coming out with something this week. Uh, we still don't have a specific date, but they will be coming back... Uh, at some point, allegedly. <laughs> when they do, I will have coverage of that as well. And, of course, WWE SmackDown on Fridays. Um, they're actually in Salt Lake this week. Huh. Eh, I can't afford tickets anyway at the moment, so... Whatever. But, yeah, Salt Lake this Friday, so that's WWE SmackDown. And then no UFC event on Saturday, so enjoy your Saturday off, I guess. Uh, okay, that's it for me. We will be back here next week to preview UFC on ESPN Plus 69. I am not making the joke. Not going to do it. Because it's not a very nice card. <laughs> oh, I hate myself. Really hate myself sometimes. All right, on that note... See you next week. As always, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.